Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. What if I told you there's a performance-enhancing drug that's completely free, completely legal, and has no ill side effects when used correctly? Oh, and you've probably already taken it many times in your life. Well, that drug is competition. And today on the show, I talked to author Poe Bronson about his book, Top Dog, that digs deep into the science of competition and how it can improve our performance in a wide variety of tasks. In today's podcast, Poe and I discuss the difference between adaptive and maladaptive competition, that's good and bad competition, the culture of virtuous competition that existed amongst the ancient Greeks, and how you can shape competition to make you a better man in all aspects of your life. Really interesting show. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash top dog. Poe Bronson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So you co-authored a book a few years ago called Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing, which is all about the research about what competition, how it influences performance, what it does to our biology, our psychology. Um, but let's start off with this, because you argue in the book that competition has all these enormous benefits that come with improving performance, but it seems like these days competition has sort of a, a PR problem. I mean, there's this ethos in public schools and in public life that you know cooperation uh, beats competition. So why does competition seem to have this PR problem these days? The fact that it has a PR problem is a lot of why we were motivated to, to work on the book in the first place. And we felt a significant disconnect between what the scientific research was saying and this default thinking about competition. And one of the things that is there is just as, as we wanted to emphasize throughout our society that teamwork is important. And we recognize that the kids that we're educating are going to have to grow up and work largely in teams. Not all of them, but but the vast majority of them. We've also kind of misread why children misbehave, and we think that uh, superiority rings of competition, and we just didn't parse these things correctly. Um, you know, just for the most fundamental aspect, think of it this way. Like, what's the most famous example? It would be you're on a sports team. You're competing while you're cooperating, right? What, when you're on a team working for your company, what are you doing? You're competing with other companies in the marketplace. Your team is up against other teams. Cooperation and teamwork are integral to competition, not divergent from competition. In fact, just to just delve quickly into the science, we fundamentally get this wrong, that the hormone of cooperation is actually the very same hormone as the hormone of competition, which is testosterone. And there's this great study where these neuroscientists would have women come into the lab and they would uh, play, you know, economic type games where you can either 
uh, at a certain point in the game, share the winnings with your partner or steal all the winnings at the end of this little economic game. And before they played, these women were told uh, they'd be given a little flask and drink it, and they would be told, uh, you've either been given uh, a, a a testosterone or you've been given this other chemical that we're not going to tell you yet. And after they played, they asked the women, what did they think? What, what had they, um, you know, what, what, you played the game a certain way. You, you stole from your opponent or you shared with your opponent. What, what hormone do you think you were given? And the women who stole from their opponent, they all assumed, I must have been given testosterone. And the women who shared with their opponent said, I must have been given this magical chemical. What is it? I really want it. But in fact, it was exactly the other way around. The women who had been given testosterone shared with their opponent. The women who stole from their opponent had actually just been given a placebo. They'd been given nothing. And that testosterone was driving cooperation, not stealing from your opponent. Because to be a good teammate in a competitive setting you really got to be fine-tuned to this. And if they do these studies of uh, college soccer teams and they rate them on you know, 15 matrix uh, assessments for how good are they really a team player, like you know, do their eyes glance over their shoulder and spot their team and how do they modulate the tone of their voice to communicate well. And, what they, and they also check testosterone levels as they rise and vary from a day before the competition to pre-competition to during the competition to after. And what they found is that the athletes whose, comp- whose testosterone goes up are better team players not and it's just we've just have this thing dead wrong i'll let you i'll let you ask me a question again brett sorry to rip off there but i care a lot about this and i I, it it bums me out that we're just have this point of view that is just wrong it's not it's not just wrong like philosophically wrong or uh or analytically wrong it's like scientifically wrong biologically wrong. Yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting. I think that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. It's like you said, most people think testosterone is this sort of rage-inducing hormone that makes you selfish and overly aggressive, but the research indicates otherwise. And we'll get more into the physiology of of, of competition, and we'll, including testosterone, some of the other neurotransmitters and hormones that are involved in the competitive process. But do you think another reason why there's a, a PR problem with competition is that that we are using the word competition to de- define two types of competition. I think in the book you talk about there's adaptive competition and maladaptive competition. Yeah, that's that, that's that's really good insight, Brett. That that we use one word to describe two different things, and we uh, we don't parse them and separate them. We do understand we have this bad you know we have this term for you know what does being a bad sport mean. And so we recognize these differences, but we think that somehow it's fundamental to competition. Certain competitions can give rise to lots of cheating. Certain competitions can give rise to poor performance. The vast majority of competition, especially if it's well-structured, gives rise to increased performance, to good sportsmanship. The ancient Greeks, um, Ashley, my co-author, and I were, you know, were kind of just fascinated because we were just brainstorming. We are like... What is ancient Greece known for? Well, it's known for two things. It's known for the Olympics, and it's known for giving us democracy. And then we were like, I wonder, you know, is there a connection between those two in any way? They both seem to be ancient Greece. Ancient Greece was a certain period of time. And so we looked it up. Interestingly, the ancient Olympics were at first a religious festival, and they – a truce was part of this because to travel across each other's lands, they needed to have a truce, and they came together. And as it grew in its popularity, and these different sultans and kings of different regions would come to attend this religious ceremony, it began to be a question: Well, who gets to light that 
fire that starts this religious ceremony. And so they decided we'll have a foot race. It was a 200-yard long foot race. Foot race, and everybody put up their best athlete to race in this foot race, and somebody won. And then slow, this religious fest slowly merged into what we know of as the Olympics. And as the Olympics ensued, uh, the, the, it wasn't just like the athletes who went to uh, Athens to compete. It, it was actually a whole posse, right? Like the king and his philosophers and his poets and slaves and his warriors who would – the warriors were often the people who were uh, the athletes. And they would come a month ahead of time and they would train. They would train for the Olympics. So all these philosophers and poets were hanging out and they were watching these athletes transform their bodies through training. And as they watched it, they began to think and discuss amongst each other, you know – it's interesting because we have this philosophy of, say, somebody from an upper caste or an upper class person is better than a lower class person. But look at this lower class soldier who's transforming his body. Uh, maybe we have this wrong. Maybe you can transform your mind. Maybe these people ought to have a voice. They ought to have essentially a vote. And in this way, the origins of democracy were exactly fostered in that month of training for the Olympics, that the Olympics gave rise to democracy itself. And they loved good sportsmanship. And the, the Greeks were already always into these games and little competitions with checkers and bones and card games and variations of that kind of stuff. And they loved these sports. And uh, there there are these uh, famous statues that there's uh, – they're, they're kind of gone now, but you can find photos of them that are sort of replicas. They were called the Zanes, and there were some wrestlers that cheated, and they rigged matches in about the 400s BC or something like that. And the ancient Greeks immortalized those wrestling cheaters with statues outside of the, the uh, uh, Olympic – uh, stadium, and they were there. Stood there, you know, for a thousand or uh, years or so uh, before they sort of fell. But uh, imagine that. Imagine if, rather than debating whether somebody was to get into, say, our baseball Hall of Fame or football Hall of Fame, instead we actually immortalized them as cheaters outside of the Hall of Fame. So they got a spot at the Hall of Fame just on the outside. Uh, the ancient Greeks uh, really understood this difference between adaptive and maladaptive competition. It was deeply imbued into their philosophy, and they uh, they had specific different words for both types, and we've lost that as a society today. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, you, you highlighted the book, they didn't just compete over sports. They competed at the Olympics. There was like poetry competitions or oratory competitions. Um, even their political process was competitive. You, you try to joust to be the best uh, oratician, best rhetorician. Um, and there was competition, like people judged each other by that. But in the end, it sort of produced this sort of flourishing, as they would call it, this excellence um, because of it. Right. The, the goal of competition was not winning itself. Competition was a process that makes you better. And to be clear... It's not just like when, – and when we say that, even listeners might go, hey, wait a minute. What are we – what do you – what? like think about it calmly here. Competition makes us better. The first and biggest ingredient is that training, right? Knowing that people have to compete, they train, and they get better through the training even if – in the actual event itself, they may do well or do poorly, whatever it is. If just to bring that back to you know, say where we started with like kids in our modern society, um, scholars have begin to study things like say math competitions, and what they found is that even kids whose parents sign them up for the math contest or the math club, and they don't like math. But their parents sort of forced them to do it, come out of it, really enjoying it, 
and learning way more math than they would have in regular class. And it's largely because it's a, it's a team environment. You're part of a team. You don't want to let your team down. So you're in addition to your intrinsic drive to say be good at math, which they may not have. They have this uh, social drive to support their team and not let their team down. And they train. They get better. And even if uh, in that moment of competition they don't win or whatever, they still come away with a, a, a really good experience. And they don't feel like a loser because they lost. They, they're very aware that they got a lot better. And in fact, the scholars who've been doing this research have begun to look across all sorts of other competitions in schools and there is quite a significant movement akin to say how startups startup competitions to have weekend long accelerators where you have a challenge and over the course of the weekend you come up with ideas and you draw on resources and by sunday you make pitches and some people get funding in a similar way this sort of gamified uh academic competitions are really successful and most interestingly and most effectively they're used in actually driving the teaching of creativity so in the science of creativity we are learning that yes some people's brains are more naturally adapted to it than others just like a basketball player might it helps to be tall in basketball um but everybody can get better at basketball and everybody can get better at being creative and especially means to not just teach it as an art form but to teach creativity in the sciences and to teach it in history classes and to use competitions and sort of short-term academic competitions are really successful at driving up motivation, engaging young learners, um, and getting students to really um, internalize what they're learning, have some drive. It, 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 not that you want to do it every day, but it, it really works. And I think the key thing here about competition is to understand that some of the difference between short-term and long-term competition. You know, competition is stressful. Long-term stress is maladaptive. It hurts you. It wears you down. It destroys lot of the hormones that your body needs but short-term competition where you train and prepare and then you have a stressful period of time where you're competing and performance stress can be good for you and can actually help your performance and then you have rest and recuperation after so this is really important training competition rest and recuperation if you never let people rest you know endless competition is bad for them but training competing and resting as a cycle is really effective at driving performance and engagement. So I think um, from what you just said, we can kind of get an idea, kind of refine what comp adaptive competition and maladaptive competition looks like. So it sounds like adaptive competition is is process focused. It's focused on the training and that you're going to get better through the process. Maladaptive competition is primarily focused on winning or losing and uh, not and and not providing rest and recuperation. Okay. And and not allowing that phase of training. Um, uh, where people can creative problem solve their strategies, where they can improve their their skill sets that will be drawn upon in the competition. Um, look, I mean, look, I, I, I can, with my brother, start washing the dishes, you know, at our summer house, and next thing you know, it turns into a competition, you know, and it's fun, right? And, and, you know, when we were kids and we would do that, it could get out of hand and there's no skill building. I mean, the competition can break out anywhere, anytime. Uh, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's good or it's bad. I, and I don't know that we're obsessed with that. I think what we're thinking about here is what is the proper role of competition in uh, in in our especially our children's lives where we're most protective and then also long term in our regular sort of working lives. So it, it's the, it sounds like the ancient Greeks and most of humanity has kind of un, intuitively understood um, how competition can improve performance. But it wasn't until the 19th century where we started getting scientific about it. Um, can you tell us about the study that the guy did with like, I think it was like a rowing machine uh, back in the 1800s where he found that, yeah, co competition can actually help improve some individual's performance. 
Right, the very first scientific study, this is guy Triplett, and he created this uh, – it's a rowing machine where you you didn't pull on an oar. You, you sort of rotated this thing in a circle. He tried to come up with a unique physical contest that nobody had a pre-skill. Nobody was already good at it. No one was naturally doing this motion. And he tested all sorts of people on this competing pushing themselves as hard as they could. And and what Ashley and I got drawn to especially was the work he did on children. And, and he found that sure enough, you know, if you ask a child to go as fast as you can, push yourself, drive yourself, you know, they would they would do pretty good. But if you put them in competition with another person, they would do even better for the most part. But not everybody. I mean, has has this research been replicated? This type of research has been replicated, the premise of it, you know, thousands of times in thousands of different ways in, in every dimension of our life, that how do people do in competition versus how do they do by just driving themselves? And where this body of science and say, where did we go wrong as a society in interpreting this was we would – you'll always see – some kids who uh, up in a competition they do poorly they don't like it it's not working for them and they do far worse than they would be if they just drove themselves and there was this kind of uh, moral judgment to say well then competition is bad rather than looking more acutely or more granularly at what are all these studies saying about when does competition lead to poorer performance um, it's a subset of the results. Why is it happening? What are the conditions? It t typically seems to be some form of maladaptive competition, but the, 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 the most fundamental rule here of all, the one that all of the studies show, is that what works is when it's a fair contest. When, say, going back to those two kids on this uh, uh, rotating rowing machine, that when one kid was up against another kid who was just flat out better and faster, and the the kid who wasn't as good felt like she had no chance, she couldn't beat this person, then she would crumble. Uh, and interestingly, the person who was really good, unchallenged, you know, coasted. So both of them would do worse. But Across all of this body of research, when people feel like it's a fair contest, they tend to do really, really do improve. There's a there's a, a study by the Air Force Academy that can I can I tell people about this? Yeah, I think no, that, I, was, I was hoping you'd bring it up. Here, here's a modern example of this. So really interesting one. Um, so at the Air Force uh, Academy. Um, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Maybe about six years ago, um, you know, to even to get into the Air Force Academy, it's one of our top institutions, and you need to get a letter of recommendation from a congressperson and, or administrative person, and you, um, you know, you have to have good grades. But even then, there are students there, young cadets who, who don't survive, and they drop out, and. You know, across the board in the military, their strategy is, has been uh, of late. Like, you know, we used to be proud of the fact that we would cut kids and they would drop out. But now they realize, you know, we need every one of these good kids we can get. And we need to stop, like, these mechanisms that uh, disempower them. We want to find a way to help them all be really good um, cadets, really good future soldiers, really good people in our society. So – uh, these economists had this idea, and they wanted to use these comparative effects, this social effect, and they had this idea. So to me, I, <laughs> I call it the J. Edmark effect because when I was in ninth grade, in eighth grade, uh, there was this kid, J. Edmark, and he was my friend. And his mom, whenever I go to his house, she was always asking him to hang out with Poe because I was a good student and he wasn't a good student. She kept figuring I would rub off on him. And all of my good habits would rub off on him. So a similar idea was, was was conceived of at the Air Force by these economists who were consulting with the Air Force Academy. And they created these uh, 
platoons, these these groups of 30 incoming freshmen, and they paired up uh, like the group, uh, like half of these little platoons were students who were at risk because you know they were on the bubble and and of maybe not succeeding once they got there, and they they paired them up with really high performing young cadets. And they thought that just by living in the same dorm, by eating together, by studying together, by training together, that the high performers rub off on the low performers. And they thought this was going to be this magic social effect. And the school year went on, and they started to see some problems right away. And they got worried, but it was an economic experiment, and they were measuring it and doing it. And by the end of the year, they were like, uh-oh, we messed up. And that the low performers had not been rubbed off on by the high performers. They had like that girl who's doing the rowing machine who collapsed and crumbled. They had uh, withdrawn from the high performers. So they would eat together, but they'd go to the other end of the table. They would study together, but they'd go to a different part of the library. They had moved their bunks. They had sort of protected themselves from this endless comparison to someone for whom they could not really compete. It was not a fair contest, and they'd pulled away. And unfortunately, the Air Force had already seeded essentially next year's dorms, if you will. So they actually did this for two years, and the second year's results were just like the first year's. And the reason we know about this study, because, you know, failed studies, you think, well, they never appear in the press or they never appear in the journals, but was that essentially afterwards, they, in order to create these dorms of high performers and low performers, they had to take out the middle performers. And they put all the middle performers, you know, in their own dorms and in their own troops. And what they found over there when they looked at them, almost as an afterthought, was that they had done really well as middle performers over the course of that first year of their freshman year. All of them had a fair contest. On any given day, they could outperform each other because through focus and hard work and extra effort, and so there was almost a sense that on a daily basis, you could outshine your competitors by applying drive and hard work and concentration. And as a result, they had pushed each other up to the level of the high performers, all of them. And that a fair – essentially the lesson here is that fair contests where kids – literally experience that capacity you know we can say forever it's all about hard work son you know you just gotta try you know or or as i famously you know had written in nurture shock and new york magazine years before you know um praising children to call attention to the role of hard work well you can talk till you're blue in the face you actually have to give kids a chance to experience it and that chance is where they literally are kind of like just about even with the other people around them. But if they try harder, if they're like, you know, dad's been saying this for a long time. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll try it, this hard work stuff. It works. And they make that sort of intrinsic internal connection that, that, that this hard work stuff that everyone's always talking about actually can help you. Texas Pete is the sauce that allows you to sauce like you mean it. Each Texas Pete sauce is packed with a bold, balanced flavor. The signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. You're definitely going to want to try every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. Their hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original, and it's not for the faint of heart. They also got a flavor called Sabor by Texas Pete, adds authentic Mexican flavor, and they also have a dust-dry seasoning that matches the flavor of the original hot sauce in a flavorful dry rub. But... The flavor that I've been enjoying lately is the chopped sriracha sauce. It's got chili, garlic, and some tropical tangy notes. It's really good. I love putting on my eggs. Texas Pete sauce like you mean it. Visit texaspeat.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And you can use promo code podcast24 for 20% off at texaspeat.com. That's podcast24 
for 20% off at texaspeat.com. Check out the Sriracha Cha Sauce. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor Meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to, to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. That's code MANLINESS50 at factormeals.com slash MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Really, so some great insights there about being mindful about the competitions you place yourself in or your kids in. So, I mean, this is not just like, it doesn't have to be like, um, has to apply to formal competition, but let's say you're trying to improve, I don't know, in your physical fitness in some capacity. You don't want to partner up with a really super fit guy. You want to find someone who's maybe just a little bit better than you or about the same and use him as sort of the benchmark, and that could allow you to see some progress in your life. Yeah, the, well, the studies say that, yes, that that such pairing will will give both people, you know, a fair chance, and and there will, both sides will, will drive each other to, to more success. Um, you know, if you're paired up with a, a weightlifting buddy or something, you know, there can be other things there, right? I mean, it's like you may not really be competing. You're just supporting each other. And, you know, you got to put in the work and stuff. Um, so people tend to improve in both situations. It's just that when you pair yourself with someone who's sort of your equal, your comrade in arms in some sense, your partner in this, then then – you uh, get more benefits than any other situation. And um, I'm curious, were there any differences between how 
female cadets or male cadets or or similar studies like it and how men and women respond differently to these differences in skill level in, in terms of competition? So at the time, the Air Force Academy was about 20% women, and it's and it's going up. Um, and there were no differences there in that situation. But again, that is a self-selected group, right? But there is an enormous body of research around um, competition and its effect on men and women that are divergent. And I just want to predicate this carefully because I'll kind of give away the ending, which is that these differences between men and women are in fact not really that they're a male or that they're a female. It's just that certain biological characteristics more commonly appear in males and less commonly in females, but they still appear both in males and females. And so where we want to start is with a... um, a gene variation called the COMT gene, C-O-M-T, and it codes enzyme that clears dopamine from the synapses in your brain, and uh, most of our brain, we have these these dopamine clearers, these, these janitors that come in and clean up everything, but in the prefrontal cortex, which evolved most recently for our brains, we, we don't have the usual mechanism. We have this sort of substitute teacher or substitute janitor and has to come in and do this stuff. And, and what it does is it, it actually biologically explain, explains the ph- phenomenon that some people perform poorly under stress and other people actually need the stress to perform their best. That they actually don't don't turn it up until you know the night before the paper's done, or got to make that presentation tomorrow. And this sort of thing that we naturally feel and become aware of in our lives that some people almost crave this stress, and they don't do a good job until the stress is there. This is actually the mechanism for that. And what's happening is, depending on your gene variation, you can uh, have a perfectly perfect level of dopamine in your prefrontal cortex in non-stressful situations. But when stress happens, that juices up. And other people, and this is the other half of society, are, are people who, who chronically have too low dopamine in their prefrontal cortex. And during stress, that dopamine level goes up now to optimal level. So your brain actually works better under stress. So now that's really cool. And that's a big parenthetical because I want to bring it back to men and women, right? So actually estrogen downregulates this COMPT gene. So it's especially true that as estrogen cycles over the course of a month, It interacts with this. And what it can mean is that uh, biologically, uh, women can have more of the behaviors of uh, sort of the fundamental default of sort of essentially having too much dopamine. They're flooded with dopamine and their brains don't work as well under stress. And again, that's this is based on genotypes, so it's all related to the genotypes, and this is not true of all women. There's many other social factors that affect men and women. I think the the one that uh, so what they find this is really interesting is as a, as sort of a consequence is that this also affects essentially how rational people's brains are at different times, and so all these studies show that like female financial act analysts on Wall Street studying literally like every single financial estimate made by an analyst for 20 years on every single stock in every single industry show that female financial analysts are on average about 8% better than male financial analysts. Women are better at seeing the risks than men are Men are better at ignoring the risks. 
So this even relates to, say, uh, when we, we know as a society we want far more women to you know, run for office. So what the studies slowly, the science is teased out because they look at like every state and they look at who campaigns in these states. They look at judges and races. I mean these scholars do a really good job looking at all this stuff. And what they find is that women, when they see that the odds of winning are poor, they don't enter the race. When they see the odds of winning are possible, and not even like great, but just possible, they enter the race more than men do. Men are really good at ignoring the odds. Men are willing to say, people say, you know, there's no chance you'll win. And be like, screw it, I'm entering anyway. Like that's the classic guy response, you know. And we heroize that, but it actually comes down to this like fundamental biology about how we assess risk. Um, and what makes a race most give? What what's the one thing that changes a race from you kind of not having a chance to having a chance? It's whether there's an incumbent in place, and incumbents, you know, uh, tend to win political races about ninety percent of the time in the United States across all categories. Uh, and so, when the incumbent incumbents are no longer running, you'll see far more women in a race because they are judging that they have a chance. Men will enter races regardless of the odds of winning. And so this is kind of interesting. You can't hear this stuff without thinking, well, how does that affect, say, startup culture or startups where the odds of succeeding in a startup might be one in three or one in ten to get a 10x return? Um, that The fact that essentially women are smarter about this um, may be a factor – influencing essentially the supply of female entrepreneurs and if and this i'm not saying that like that's permanent by any means it's not permanent by a long shot but it's it is about culture and support so people need to understand that they have a chance uh, otherwise they'll evaluate these on their own it's really interesting i'm curious so i mean i i understand that uh you know being risk sensitive has can play out in the long but but are there any advantages for being risk naive? Because, I mean, obviously men have it. We've had it for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. So there's possi- There has to be a benefit to it or else we wouldn't have it. So, I mean, what is the adaptive reason why men are risk naive? So, again, let's, I want to I wanna be careful about overgeneralizing here because sure. I know this is a sense thing. So, but at this point, it's important to say that when we say men are this, women are this, we should probably stop at this point because – uh, there are plenty of female entrepreneurs, and so basically what's, what I'm talking about here is a phenomenon that on average men this and on average women that. For any particular male or female, uh, it's it, one-third of women have this uh, capacity to essentially ignore risk and two-thirds of men. Okay, So this capacity to sort of uh, – Try it anyway and believe in yourself and grind it out and disprove the odds. That's something that two-thirds of men and one-third of women have biologically. And this uh, uh, accurate uh, risk sensitivity is a, is a biological construct that two-thirds of women have and one-third of men. And so it's an interaction of certain genes. It's actually uh, – Bizarrely, this is actually something that is wired in at fetus stage at about two months into the fetal cycles. And um, those same hormones that act upon that deep part of the brain and, and spinal cord, and, and they, they also do other things. So one of the so so literally they impact like those same hormones impact how long your fingers are. So you can do studies that measure the length of fingers among Italian entrepreneurs, and you'll find that that the one you know the one third of the entrepreneurs are women, and they'll have a finger length set of traits that as do the men that that. Is prob- that is something that is established two months into their fetal development. 
This is the uh, 2D, 4D ratio, right? Yeah. Right. Another um, aspect of thinking about or being intentional about competition is um, the, the size of the competitive pool. And I think you highlighted research where you found that as the competitive pool increases, the competitive drive decreases in people. Because, I mean, it makes sense. There's less of a chance. There's, there's more people in there. There's less of a chance that you can win. So I'm curious. I mean, this is, I think, an important thing to think about in our globalized, hyper-connected economy where we're hypothetically competing now with millions of other people, not just in your state or even in your country, but around the world. So how do you, how do you maintain that competitive fire in such a large competitive pool? I mean, I, I can see a lot of people like, wow, it's not even worth trying. I'll just kind of be mediocre my life because there's no way I can beat those startups in India or China or Silicon Valley. Yeah, there's the, and, and, the, and you know, or think of a, uh those who've taken the ACT or the SAT, you know, listeners would have had that, largely had that experience. And if you sit there going, you know, you get there that test and you're like, man, every student in the country is taking this test today and I have to compete against all of them. It's really demotivating. And it it demotivates you and has certain biological consequences in both in the long term and in the short term, right? And <clears throat> even in the short term, just thinking that way will uh, tune up your b- brain's uh, fear networks. It will tune down your brain's reward networks. It will uh, tweak the ratio of noradrenaline to adrenaline, which is like to perform, you want to get a really certain ratio there. It will affect your blood pressure. It will affect uh, your uh, vasoconstriction, vasodilation, and your uh, body's capacity to sort of convert fuel into energy. And just by thinking about it differently. And then you will suffer poor performance just because you think of it that way. You know, what works, I mean, to take like taking the ACT or SAT, like what works is to say, you know, it's to challenge a friend or challenge a cousin or challenge someone to say, hey, you and I are going to compete. We both took that test. We both did okay. We're going to see who can improve their score by more. And if you focus your competition, you can improve. And in this landscape of our globalized world, that same mechanism works, that you want to focus your efforts on beating so-and-so, this other – you know, startups work because they are typically in a space where there are a lot – just like there's always – Coming out of Hollywood, two movies about Mars at the same time, two movies about the White House blowing up at the same time. You know, you're like, startups are in the same way. There's startups in your space and you're competing with them. And if you focus your efforts on them, you tend to do really well. One of the most fascinating industries where we saw this pattern was in Italy. The industry that makes, not packages, but they make the machinery that makes packaging. So the way we get pharmaceuticals, the way we get blister packs or the the clamshells around cell phones. I mean, all these things have been invented as this new packaging, and they come from all these newfangled packaging machines. And if you turn back the clock 15 years, Germany really dominated the packaging machine industry, and Italy was a much smaller player. But in this very small region of Italy outside Bologna – there are about 200 packaging machines, and they're not all competing with each other. Inside that industry of where there's 200 packaging machine companies, and they make these, you know, these huge machines are the size of a room that cost, you know, $400,000, but they will churn out all sorts of modern packaging. Um, in cosmetics, there's four companies, and they know who each other are, and they are fiercely competitive. And they can go to dinner in Bologna and they can be like, yeah, there's the guy who just came up with that new thing that the machine can do and that's everybody's buying it and it's great. And so through intense local rivalries, the people in those companies were passionate, were knowledgeable, their status was at stake, 
and they drove themselves to succeed by emphasizing riv local rivalry. And in the process, they went from being a small player in this global market to the dominant player in this global market. And so it, it, it's important to think less globally when you're competing and instead to think more about, you know, who's your rival. Think of sports, how, how, uh, how, you know, look at Nike and Adidas are rivals and they're pushing each other and they're doing great while through that rivalry, while smaller other companies like Fila and stuff have, have sort of stepped, had to step aside. Um, in sports, we see historic rivalries that push teams to, to sort of figure out how to get better, how to reach that next level. So the lesson for us is to sort of think locally here think more about our rivals think about our direct competitors all right so i think there's some really two good insights we've hit so far so the first one was uh, if you're going to compete make sure the competition level is at a parity right you don't want to compete with someone yep. too high and then also you want to narrow your field of competition you know if you have to do that um psychologically right instead of thinking about every kid in america is taking the sat or i'm competing with every other you know software developer in the world you think about I'm just going to compete against these, you know, few dozen that I know, and I'm going to try to best them as best I can. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to this biology because I think the biology stuff is really interesting. Um, you, we've hit a few of the things um, already. You talked about how testosterone um, actually makes people more cooperative um, in order to be more competitive. We've talked about the COMPT gene and its influence on dopamine. So. Let's talk about the process of what happens to our physiology as we prepare for competition, what happens during competition, and then what happens afterwards, whether we win or lose, and why we have those responses. So I think the best way to approach this is let's get, let's get back to how we as a side. So I'm going to come at this, but I'm going to talk about stress. I'm going to talk about how we as a society label stress. And we have a – even more so than we are down on competition, we are really down on stress. We make a broad sweeping connection between stress and poor performance. People say, hey, honey, how was your day? Oh, I wasn't very good. I was stressed. Um, you know, how was your test? I was stressed. Stress taking reduces performance. And we we go like, oh yeah, well, what's wrong with that? Like, of course, it's what it does. Like, like we just accept it. And uh, so let me tell you about the work of Jeremy Jameson. Jeremy was he's done this work starting. We did it with uh, Harvard students who were preparing for the GRE exam where they're really competitive about what elite academic program they're going to get into for graduate school. And he's also reproduced at the other end of the spectrum with community college students in Michigan. And the paradigm's the same. I'll just talk about the Harvard students for a second. But they come in and they take a – and the GRE is computerized test now. So the, the first thing they get is they, they spit in a cup and they're told they're going to – their saliva is going to be measured for different hormones and stuff. And they read a page that – and half the students read a page that says, you know, this is a study on the connection between stress and performance – and the others read that, and then they also continue to read a paragraph that says, new science is questioning whether stress is bad for performance, and it may in fact even help you. Uh, we don't really know, but when you're taking this test, if you're feeling stressful, it, it may it, it's, it's an open question whether it's going to help you or not. And they took the test, and the kids who got that prompt who were told that stress might help them performance, performed 50 points higher out of 800 on the GRE. Just from reading that. And when they took the actual GRE, they actually scored 65 points higher months later. And they hadn't continued to be taught this. They just taught it once. And now, so you might think, hmm, I get it. See here, here's what happened. 
you told them that don't stress out about your stress. You told them your stress isn't going to isn't bad for you. So, you know, you essentially tricked them to not be stressed. But that was, in fact, not the case. They had taken their saliva levels and they had tested them for alpha amylase and cortisol. And they found that these students were, in fact, truly stressed and more stressed. It was how their body interpreted stress. See, if we label it as a bad thing, we are actually harming our students, ourselves, every time. There is a very big difference here between long-term stress and short-term stress. Short-term performance stress can be harnessed to help you, not to hurt you. And constantly panicking about like stress of competition is undermining kids because it's labeling short-term stress as wrong. Stress, those physiological symptoms are actually your body loading up with lots of energy because it knows this moment of competition has happened. And we interpret it often as nausea or as anxiety. But if you interpret it as energy loading to prepare, you will actually perform better. And the, 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 what I was describing to you in kind of a previous question about how our the way we mentally conceive of stress triggers our vagal nerves that instantly change the ratio of noradrenaline to adrenaline, which affects out throughout the entire skeletal structure of our body, the vasodilation versus vasoconstriction, which affects energy capacities and and especially tunes up the reward networks or tunes up the fear networks all of that is that physiology is moderated by how you conceive of stress and that if you can conceive of short-term stress as pumping you up as gearing you up as readying you for competition you will perform better and you can actually harness your stress to perform your best. And remember that that's true regardless of the comp gene. But remember that already, if you need a little, little bolus of a pat on the back here, remember that, uh, you know, because the comp gene is evenly distributed in our society, a quarter of us fully need stress to perform our best. Intellectually, we think better under stress. And another half of us at least share share have share have a gene of at least one of the two genes for that we would have got it from our mother or our father so a lot of us can really benefit from this but in fact what i'm describing is sort of the way that the mind controls the physiology that's true of all of us and we need to change as a society how we think of short term stress and differentiate, parse it like the Greeks to the distinction between short-term stress that's predicated with training. I got, you know, I, I knew I had a presentation. I was working so hard on that presentation. I knew I was going to have to give it. I knew it would be stressful, but I prepared. And then there was the moment of performance, and I nailed it. And then afterward, rest and recuperation. And if you give her those yourself those cycles, you can really do amazing work in that moment. What do you do if you have the comp gene where you crip, you know, you crumble under pressure? Like how should you approach the competitive process that way? So it's a uh, great question because when I would speak at say schools about this, um, many parents sit there thinking, and they, I mean, they're, sometimes they're almost in tears. They're here, they're kind of interpreting this like, "Wow, it's my kid's physical, you know, physiology. It's it's her biology. It's his biology that must be the case that my kid really is not wired for stress, and they feel like it's fatalistic. Like there's nothing I can do about it. And their and their their natural quick thinking is strategy is towards well i need to make sure then for my kid to learn that they need to uh not be in a stressful situation to not have to deal with any sort of performance stress at all and you know 
when the time comes, maybe I won't even have them take the SAT, <laughs> you know, because it's just there's no my kid has no chance because of this sort of biological fatalism. The science, the scientist, no scientist who works in this field actually agrees with that. That is a sort of an adaptive response. What 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 they all note is that you know our brains learn, and we have many layers of systems. And what's really important to do is to train up our stress management systems and our stress control systems. So it's the same way I was describing that it's true for everybody, no matter what level of comp type of comp gene you have, that, that if you think about short-term stress as performance enhancing, you can leverage it. Um, it's important to inoculate kids to the stress response. And to inoculate them, it means to stress them without overwhelming them. And to understand the difference, and if you can adaptively train kids to cope with stress but not to overwhelm them, their, their strength, their stress management systems in their body and in their mind will improve. Their mind will learn how to activate these certain networks to control this stuff. Um, simplest example, uh, this is, is going to sound amazing, but... You can tell with a certain neural scan which kids are going to be shy at about nine months old in their life. And you see a certain uh, brain reaction. And by the time they're about six, you will see, and certainly by ten, you will see that about half of those kids, even though they are sort of biologically predisposed to be really shy, have learned to master and control that response and tune it down. Um, I was one of those kids. I was perversely shy until I was about six years old. My son also had this same neural signature for sure. Neither of us would you think of as shy. We've learned through our sort of stress management systems to, to calm that response. And so in the same way, it's really important to empower, to inoculate, to strengthen these sort of stress management systems so that they don't uh, undermine you. Sure, there's going to be situations where you can't control that and you're going to have that sort of negative comp gene thing. You're going to be overloaded and you need to de-stress in those points to perform your best. No question. And some people will, won't, you know... They, they're never going to turn themselves into someone who really needs stress to perform their best. They're still going to be the kind of person who, without stress, they perform their best, but maybe even under stress, they can still do well. Right. Um, so it sounds like practicing in stressful situations. So like if you're practicing for the SAT, like do it under like time restrictions. Or if you have a fear of public speaking, like you know, slowly build up an audience until you can sort of manage that, that stress that you will have. So just a lot of practice, it sounds like, is the, the, the remedy or part of the remedy. Let me just be really clear. Look, um, I scored, you know, I, I, I did great on the SAT, right? I, I have the genetic profile that's going to help me in those moments. Um, but the SAT is the worst form of competition anyone's ever had. It's the dumbest thing ever. It, you cannot prepare for the stress of the SAT. You only take it, you know, once or twice in your life. There's no training for it. But most of all, it's just badly competition designed. Because let's see, when I put my kid on a swim team, even if she doesn't win, I'm like, she made friends. She got activities. She was outside. You know, she had mentors. She had coaching. She learned the value of hard work. You know, she became a better swimmer. She got some, you know, white ribbons. Uh, we had some birthday cake. You know, there's all these good reasons to be in the pool that aren't just about winning. But nobody ever comes out of the SAT and says to their friend, you know, I bombed, but I really made a lot of friends at the Kaplan Center. <laughs> it's the only competition where the only thing that matters is the final score, and that is not a good competition. Nobody ever says, you know, I crumped in there. I scored terrible, I'm sure. But I learned a lot of vocabulary in all of my training that's going to help me long term. That would be the approach, which is that winning or losing, you got better. 
No, this is a competition where the only thing that matters is the final score, and that is by default a maladaptive competition. Now, should we have SATs or not? Well, SATs are going to be a test that benefits those who have the biological predisposition to handle that kind of performance stress. On the other hand, if you got rid of them, all of the rest of it is a system designed to biologically to, to, to favor those who biologically don't have that system. Either way, we're kind of screwed, and so we need to balance these things fairly. Uh, we need to understand and recognize that we need to have systems in place that some kids who score poorly on that kind of stuff nevertheless can be great, brilliant students, um, and vice versa. There are people who don't, don't, don't do great all year long. They don't do amazing stuff, but when they have to write that paper or when they do take that standardized test, they ace it, and that's showing you sort of them at their best. And in this way... Both types of students can show you what's at their best, but I cannot defend the SAT. Let me just make it clear. <laughs> it's a competition where the only thing that matters is the final score. Right, right. Well, hey, Poe, this has been a great conversation, and there's a lot more we can delve into, so I'm going to recommend everyone go check out the book Top Dogs. But where can people find out about your latest works? I think you mentioned earlier well, before the conversation that um, you're doing a lot of research about the future of sport. Yeah, so um, uh, the last two years uh, – We've set up an editorial team, and we're doing work on the future of sports. And uh, you can find that on Twitter at, at futureof or on the website at futureof.org, and it'll take you to the sports report. Uh, we do this with uh, cooperation with 62 professional teams, and it's been really fun. Uh I think there's a lot of – it's not that a lot of technology is so much going to change sports as it is this, that a lot of change is coming to our, all of our society as a result of new technologies. Sports is an interesting prism by which to look at these and to get used to some of these new technologies and to think about it. And it's fun. So uh, futureof.org is where you can find the future of sports. Fantastic. Well, Poe Bronson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was Poe Bronson. He's the author of the book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. You can find it on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, check out his website, poebronson.com, for more information about his, his work. And also, check out the show notes at aom.is slash topdog, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. And we appreciate your reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.